Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Anthony Robbie on the topic, The Crusades. This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. We might begin our uh, examination of the Crusades by looking at two uh, particularly important uh, root causes of the first is the alleged prophet Muhammad. Muhammad uh, lived from 570 to 632. And he lived in an unusual place and time in world history. He lived in the Arabian Peninsula, as everybody knows. But the late 6th, early 7th century Arabian Peninsula is about the only place in the world there's ever been Jewish missionaries. As you know, Jews uh, claim their Jewish faith by descent, by racial descent, uh, rather than by, uh, well, conversion. They don't set out to convert people. That's always happened. There have always been people who have become Jews. But in that particular time, in that place, there were actually Jewish missionaries. They set out to convert large numbers of people. The Arabs at the time were uh, idol-worshipping pagans. But it was an eclectic place. There were all sorts of religions. There were Nestorian Christians there. There were a few Orthodox Christians. Uh, there were Zoroastrians from Persia. There were lots and lots of uh, idol-worshipping uh, groups around the place. And there were quite a few Jews, too to the point where there are actually whole tribes of Arabs who had converted to uh, Judaism. And I think that this explains to some extent the religion which, which Muhammad then created. Uh, Islam grew out of this culture in which Judaism, a fiery evangelical Judaism, was one of the most dominant religious forces on the scene. And there are those who think that Islam is really a, a sort of a, a Christian heresy. I'm more inclined to the view that it's a Jewish heresy, in fact. When one thinks about the, the prayer several times a day, the ritual washings, the uh, clean and unclean foods, the suspicion of images, etc., all of this really comes from Judaism rather than from Christianity. And there are lots of other things as well. So, in this sort of melting pot of southern Arabia, uh, Muhammad proclaimed himself a prophet in the year 610. And uh, the God whom he professed to worship was the one worshipped by the Jews and the Christians. But at the beginning, Allah was uh, a principal God, and there were many other gods as well, and many female goddesses. In 622, Muhammad tried a reform program at Mecca, which failed, and uh, he was expelled from the city by its inhabitants who resented his program. And that is the date from which Muslims date, uh, begin their calendar, the Hejira, the flight from Mecca. At this time, Muhammad began to, uh, permitted polygamy, uh, which was allowed among the Arabians, and he began to accuse Jews and Christians of falsifying doctrine, in particular, of course, the, the Blessed Trinity. There were certain characteristics of this faith already. There was no mystical element to it. There was no mysticism whatsoever. Uh, there was no asceticism. This was not a religion of the monks, although it's clear that Muhammad had some dealings with the monks. And, of course, holy war was from the very beginning, an imperative, a duty of those who embrace the new submission, the new Islam. Muhammad told his followers to pray to Mecca, not to Jerusalem. And in 630, Muhammad recaptured Mecca. He destroyed all of the idols there except for one, which is the, uh, the stone which uh, Muslims pray towards and uh, walk around and kiss and venerate and all of that. During the course of his military endeavours, he was uh, aligned with Jews and pagans. However, he abandoned some, he massacred others as time passed. And after his death, uh, the successors of his uh, leadership, the caliphs, 
continued his doctrine of ceaseless war, attacking the neighbouring lands for plunder. And during the reigns of his first two successors, Abu Bakr, who reigned from 632 to 634, a very brief one, and then Omar, who followed him from 634 to 644, an enormous number of countries was conquered. Muhammad himself had conquered all of Arabia, but there remained all of the neighbouring countries who had made no war upon them, were entirely peace-loving, if you like. This is not a peaceful age we're talking about, but uh, uh, these countries had offered no provocation. However, within two years, by 634, not only Arabia had fallen, but all of Palestine, all of Syria, all of Egypt, and Persia. It's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. The next year, Antioch fell. The year after that, 638, Jerusalem fell. By 639, the furthest reaches of Egypt had fallen. By 642, Alexandria had been taken and the Romans evacuated that huge province. Now, there were some things that made it easier for Islam to spread in these early years. The first thing was that the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire had just finished a ten-year war, a devastating, terrible war, and both of them had fought each other to a standstill. The Byzantines had won, the Persian Empire was absolutely depleted. It was at that point that uh, Mohammedan armies uh, burst out of Arabia. And the other thing, of course, is that Christian divisions made it easier for these assaults on Christian lands. Egypt was already in rebellion from Byzantium, uh, having given itself over to the Monophysite heresy. And they found the rule of the emperor and the resentment of his rule far more of an imposition than the thought of these people of indeterminate religion who had come in from Arabia. In the years that follow, the Caliph Othman, reigned from 646 to 656, conquered Armenia and Cyprus. The Umayyad Caliphs were at Damascus uh, from 661 to 670. Islamic conquest then spread eastward to India and to Turkestan and westward to Carthage, which was taken in 698 the Barbary Coast, which is the coast of North Africa, and the Northwest. In 711, they crossed into Spain. Sadly, again, this was through the treachery of the Byzantine governor of Spain. Imperial ships were used to ferry them across the strait from one side to the other. We'll forget about that. That was 711. Nine years later, they crossed the Pyrenees into France. And while this was going on, they had made their way right across the Byzantine Empire in 717 to 718. They attacked Constantinople itself, first of the assaults on Constantinople. So it was a constant and relentless program of war and of conquest of any nation surrounding. Most of them were Christians, but uh, many of them were, were others as well. By the time the Crusades uh, began, two-thirds of traditional Christian lands had been occupied by Islamic conquerors. Now, at first, their treatment of Christians was not too bad. There were restrictions on public worship. Um, all Jews and Christians were expelled from Arabia. Interesting, when you think of the constant complaints one gets about the expulsion of the Jews from uh, from Spain, no one ever mentions the expulsion of Christians and Jews uh, from Arabia centuries before. Muslims who left their religion, and there have always been from the earliest days converts from Islam to Christianity, and those who, who did that, of course, were put to death. In 807, Harun al-Rashid gave Charlemagne recognition as protector of the pilgrims who were going to the Holy Land protector of churches and monasteries. The assaults of uh, Islam continued over the next 200 years. 
In 846, Muslims invaded Italy. They sacked Rome itself, several Roman churches, St. Peter's as well, uh, the tombs of St. Peter and St. Paul were, were sacked by Muslims. In 876, 30 years later, a papal fleet defeated the Saracens in the south of Italy and freed thousands of Christian slaves from the galleys. In 916, Pope John X defeated Muslims in Italy and drove them out of Garigliano. So when we talk about uh, war between Christians and Muslims, I just want you to, to realize that well, it's, it's really got nothing to do with the Crusades, follow me. It's been going on since day one. It's been absolutely incessant, and it's been all one way. That is, assaults by Muslims on Christians. Christians were not engaged during these times of conquering Muslim lands. So that's the first point I'd like just to, uh, to understand. The second point concerns the city of Jerusalem, which is the focal point of the Crusades themselves. Jerusalem was, con was controlled by pagan Romans until 312. That year, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, was converted, and several basilicas were built in the years that followed. Later, the Persians conquered it in 614, slaughtered thousands of people, took thousands of slaves. Now, the city of Jerusalem had been Jewish, but when the Jews rose in rebellion against the, uh, the Emperor Hadrian, he destroyed the city. And uh, the, the, the Jews who were there were, were expelled from the city into foreign lands. Uh, and they still refer to it as the diaspora. Not everyone was expelled because the Jews had first themselves, as their first act of rebellion against Rome, expelled the Christians in their midst. And throughout these early centuries, again, there is an unremitting historical record of hostility and, and of oppression on the part of Jews against Christians whenever they had the opportunity. As long as Jews had the upper hand, they were always violently opposed to Christianity. There even some who believe that the Roman persecution of Christians was instigated by Jews. When you think about it, why would the, the, the Romans be so opposed to Christianity? What was there in Christianity that was annoying or, or uh, controversial? It can't have been just one God because the Jews believed in one God, but they weren't persecuted. Anyway, the expulsion of the Christians at that point enabled the Christians to be the only community that was continuous in Jerusalem. So that the Romans came, expelled the Jews, destroyed the city, and the first people back in were the Christians. From that time on, Jerusalem was really a majority Christian city, 132 AD onwards. And because of that, the holy places were all recognized and remembered. And that is why the tradition that we have identifying things like the, the, the tomb of Christ, the place of the Annunciation, all of those spots, we have very great certainty about them. They're not just figments of the imagination created centuries later. They are the living memory of a, of a living community. Anyway, 630, the Byzantine Emperor Heraclitus recaptured Jerusalem and restored it as a Christian city. He brought back the true cross, which had been carried off by the pagans by the, the Persians. But it wasn't to be long. It was just months before Muslims themselves, well, uh, the, just years, eight years, before the Muslims themselves conquered Jerusalem. So it was a very brief return to Christianity. And so things continued for the next uh, 370 years or so. And as I say, at first they didn't interfere too much with the life of the Christians. There were certain restrictions, you know, the payment of taxes, legal disabilities, uh, refusal to build new churches, problems with putting crosses on, same sort of things that still happen throughout the Muslim world. In 1006, though, things changed dramatically. In the intervening years, there have been more and more restrictions and prohibitions on the, on the people. 
uh, about pilgrimages to the Holy Land. More and more pilgrims were getting attacked, assaulted, robbed, killed on the way. The pilgrims, of course, were unarmed, but as time passed, they started taking with them uh, sort of bodyguards, military bodyguards. In 1006, the Caliph Hakim, probably mad, everyone seems to agree that he was mad, uh, ordered the destruction of all Christian churches. There were many martyrs at this time of the faith. But in particular, Hakim destroyed the tomb of Christ itself. He took the church of the Holy Sepulchre and his his workmen chipped away the tomb. Now, until that time, the tomb of Christ was still intact. And the tomb was, uh, as it's described in the Gospels, it was a cave, and it had an entrance, and inside it had a ledge, it's called an arcosolium. The ledge was a flat thing, a sort of semicircle over the top, the body was placed on it, to the Jewish burial practice of the time. And a body would be left in there, in this tomb, for between three and six months. And, of course, nature would uh, take its course. Uh, the body would be covered with fragrant herbs, some of which were to conceal the smell of decomposition, some of which were to assist the process of decomposition. And uh, after six months, the tomb would be opened again. The relatives would go inside, they'd collect up the bones, they'd put them in a little stone box, an ossuary. And those ossuaries are found throughout the Holy Land in great numbers. Uh, every Easter, of course, we get another nonsense announcement from some uh, crank around the place, to, you know, announcing he's discovered the, the tomb of Christ or the tomb of St. James or all this nonsense. Uh, and, of course, as you know, there are very, very common names. Um, we've known about, there are several of these ossuaries uh, with the name of Jesus or some variety of it, Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, many, many of them. You know, there's nothing new, but uh, some shyster gets his name in the, in the press last year uh, for doing this and uh, makes a bit of money out of it. It's ludicrous. Anyway, in our Lord's case, the Gospel mentions that this was a tomb in which nobody had been laid before. You might think, well, isn't that obvious? <laughs> no one would say someone was buried at Rookwood in a grave in which no one had been laid before. But the whole thing was that um, about these tombs is that they were used over and over again, reused. Now, that had never happened to the tomb that the Lord's body was in. It was a new tomb. So the only body that ever was laid in there was Christ's. And as I say, that structure remained intact for centuries, for a thousand years, until these characters came along and they chipped it away right down to the floor. So the spot where the Lord's body rested, place, that's gone. But the floor itself, that is the site where the tomb was, and there's no doubt whatsoever about that. That is the place of the tomb. Now, the shockwaves that this sent around the Christian world were extraordinary. I, I can't describe it to you. I, I like to tell people the closest that we can get to it is to uh, imagine that Hollywood got nuked or something and, and the whole centre of your culture just disappeared. Uh, but in an age of faith, this was shameful. Shameful that Christians had allowed the Holy Land, which should be dearer to them than their own home, to fall into the hands of, of unbelievers, sacrilegious unbelievers who were destroying it. That was a terrible thing. Now, in an age unlike ours, which believed in honour as well, it was deeply dishonourable. And, of course, this was the early... The early uh, Middle Ages, when people were just starting to get some idea of chivalry and of a, what is the purpose of a good life and how can one's talents be used properly in the service of Christ if one is not uh, entering a religious life. Well, all of these ideas were moving towards a point where people decide something has got to be done. It was clear that the Holy Land was no longer safe. People couldn't go there safely and even the sacred places were no longer secure.
something had to be done. The other element that was occurring around this time was a, a, a Muslim sect called the Assassins. Doped up on hashish, they would uh, attack and murder uh, travelers, pilgrims in particular. And these people went unrebuked and unrestrained. The local rulers did nothing to protect the Christians. In 1071, the Muslim Seljuk Turks defeated the Byzantine Christian armies at the Battle of Manzikert and forbade pilgrimages to Jerusalem. This, not the sack of Jerusalem at Constantinople in 1204, this was the worst military defeat the Byzantine Empire suffered, and it was the critical one. In 1095, the ambassadors of the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Comnenus asked Pope Urban II, Blessed Urban II, for help in defence against the Muslim Turks. So it was not an act of Western aggression, it was the response to a plea for help from suffering Christians of the East. Plea from those who were uh, from the Muslim, for help against the Turks who were continuing their attacks on the Christian Byzantine Empire. So we may ask ourselves, why did the Pope there at the Council of Clermont in France, why did he rouse the Crusaders? Well, we can be certain that he had a number of motives in this action. One. He wanted to unite East and West after the schism of 1054. It was still a recent thing, a terrible thing, a very recent thing. There was still a lot of hope that something could be done about it. And here was a request coming from the East for help from the West. Secondly, the Pope wanted, obviously, to protect pilgrims and also to protect Christendom itself. Like I say, two-thirds of Christendom had disappeared. That's extraordinary to consider. Two-thirds of it. Well, what was next? About domino theories in the modern world, this was a dreadful situation. Something had to be done. The Pope also wanted to turn Europe's fratricidal wars to a selfless and noble cause. There was far too much infighting, far too much energy expended in dreadful, uh, violent and uh, useless, bloody conflicts. And finally, there was that noble ideal to free the land that Christ had trod, and to free the holy city itself from its enslavement. And you know, is it so unreasonable that they should have wanted to do that? Of all the three great monotheistic religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, only Christianity was founded in Jerusalem. It is more a holy city for us than it is for anyone else. And Rome is, of course, very venerated, but Rome is a, is a distant second to Jerusalem in terms of its sanctity for Christians. Well, the result of the Pope's call was the First Crusade, and it was the greatest and really the only successful crusade. Even so, it was fraught with a lot of troubles. And there were faults which we don't gloss over. We admit them as a matter of historical accuracy. To do less is to describe the fiction, which is, is of no use to anyone. There were massacres of Jews in Europe at this time, and there were some forced conversions. This was uh, a mass movement. It was not directed by the church. Uh, the church did everything she could to prevent it. Bishops across Europe even took Jews in great numbers into their own houses and protected them from the crowds and denounced those outside who were doing this. Popes and secular rulers spoke against it, but it was so widespread and dreadful that, uh, that it could hardly be stopped. <coughs> Secondly, there were difficulties with the Byzantines. The Byzantines' motives were overwhelmingly political. They wished the recovery of their lands. Unfortunately, they were not faithful to their promises. Pretty much every promise they ever made, they broke. They failed to deliver arms, they failed to deliver food, uh, they didn't give the financial aid they promised, they didn't come up with the escorts or the guides that they'd asked for, they became hostile and suspicious as soon as the Latin armies arrived, uh, and on occasion 
they even attacked them and uh, even allied themselves with Muslims attacking the Western Crusaders. Relations very quickly broke down. They wouldn't provide troops of their own. They expected these people to come from the West with no assistance, no financial aid to perform uh, these enormous military feats. And it was a very costly business getting halfway across the known world at the time uh, to the Holy Land. And then after all of that, to simply hand the territories which had been conquered at the, at the price of the, the blood of their friends and relatives uh, back to people who had given them nothing but distrust along the way. So you can see how the, the political divisions just became deeper and deeper between these groups. And then there were the, the difficulties of the journey itself. Very, very long distances. Great physical hardships. It was very expensive. People took out loans to support themselves. Most of the crusaders who went had to uh, mortgage their own property to go to the east, so they certainly didn't go out for financial motives, on the contrary. And for centuries, the Holy Land and the crusader kingdoms there were supported by a flow of money coming from Europe to the Middle East. It was not the other way. Not only that, but the Crusaders had no income source for the years while they were abroad. They had to be self-supporting. They had no means of finance. And no, no means of financing such an enormous venture for years on end existed in the world at the time. And consequently, some did turn to theft and pillage while they were out there in the Middle East. Not the majority, but enough to dishonor the cause. Then there were divisions among the Crusaders themselves. We must remember that the Crusade was not controlled by the Church. It was up to individual uh, secular rulers to, to rouse their own followers and to form military contingents and to try to coordinate with each other as best they could and then head out. Before very long, the old problems of Europe replicated themselves in Palestine. Feudal divisions, politicking, factions, ambitious nobles war among the Crusader states, in which some even sided with Moslems and Byzantines for military advantage against each other. These disastrous divisions were the ruin of the Crusader states. And of course, it must be remembered that the Crusader states suffered gravely from the lack of population. Crusaders were not colonizers. They did not go out there, they did not bring families from Europe uh, to settle in those places. That crusade, that first crusade, which did capture Jerusalem and uh, a significant part of uh, the Levant, that the uh, western uh, border of Asia, uh, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, uh, as I say, was the only really successful one. But there were other crusades as well. We count traditionally ten crusades for the Holy Land. It's a, an arbitrary number, really. But that first one was the most uh, realistic. The second one fizzled out. The third one got as far as the city of Jerusalem itself, led by Richard the Lion, out of England, but uh, he had to turn back when he found his, he didn't have the logistical support to take the city and keep it. The Fourth Crusade was the one that uh, was diverted to Constantinople and conquered it instead of the Holy Land. Uh, the Fifth Crusade was another shemozzle, um, by the Emperor Henry II, uh, the Sixth and Seventh Crusades were led by St. Louis, and the others were a very minor affairs, barely deserving the name. But there were other areas in which uh, Crusades were proclaimed, and in, the main one is actually in Spain. That was a 700-year Crusade. But in particular, it was formally pronounced from the 12th century uh, and successfully recovered the country only in 1492. There was also a crusade to free Sicily. It was a successful crusade. And uh, there were several crusades proclaimed against the Ottoman Turks. Just remember that after conquering Constantinople, the Turks uh, conquered most of Eastern Europe as well and had to be driven out of there over the course of centuries. And that is something that we should take a certain heart from. Uh, although most of the gains militarily that uh, 
Islam has made over the centuries have been conducted militarily, and have had many military defeats as well, and been driven out of many places that they conquered. The last crusade occurred in the 18th century, and that was a, a crusade, an unsuccessful one, as it turned out, to free Cyprus. I'd like to read a little bit I've got here from the, the speech by Blessed Urban II. It was uh, one of the most famous speeches ever given in history. It was the speech at the Council of Claremont, at which he roused people to go to the East. And it's worth hearing his words to find out what was uppermost in his mind at the time. What were the motivating factors which drove him to do this? Pope said, For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them the aid which has often been promised them. For, as the most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them and have conquered the territory of Romania, that is the Greek Empire, as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean and the Hellespont, which is called the Arm of St. George. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit them to continue thus for a while with impurity, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. I say this to those who are present. It is meant also for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. And then he went on and he described what was actually happening there. <clears throat> From the confines of Jerusalem and the city of Constantinople, a horrible tale has gone forth and very frequently has been brought to our ears, namely that a race from the kingdom of the Persians, an accursed race, a race utterly alienated from God, a generation forsooth which has not directed its heart and has not entrusted its spirit to God, has invaded the lands of those Christians and has depopulated them by the sword, pillage and fire. It has led away a part of the captives into its own country, and a part it has destroyed by cruel tortures. It has either entirely destroyed the churches of God or appropriated them for the rites of its own religion. They destroy the altars after having defiled them with their uncleanness. They circumcise the Christians and the blood of the circumcision they either spread upon the altars or pour into the vases of the baptismal font. When they wish to torture people by a base death, they perforate their navels and dragging forth the extremity of the intestines bind it to a stake. Then with flogging they lead the victim around until the viscera having gushed forth, the victim falls prostrate upon the ground. Others they bind to a post and pierce with arrows. Others they compel to extend their necks and then, attacking them with naked swords, attempt to cut through the neck with a single blow. What shall I say of the abominable rape of the women? To speak of it is worse than to be silent. The kingdom of the Greeks is now dismembered by them, and deprived of territory so vast in extent that it cannot be traversed in a march of two months. On whom, therefore, is the labour of avenging these wrongs and of recovering this territory incumbent, if not upon you? You upon whom above other nations God has conferred remarkable glory in arms, great courage, bodily activity, and strength to humble the hairy scalp of those who resist you. And it must be remembered that the Pope wasn't um, thoughtless and uh, imprudent, but could only go on crusade under certain conditions, just anybody. There were random crusades that went out. There was a, a tragic children's crusade. There was a peasant's crusade not well organized, not directed by the church, not uh, authorized by the church in any way. They were shambles and led to disaster. This is what the Pope said, though. And we do not command or advise that the old or feeble or those unfit for bearing arms undertake this journey. Nor ought women to set out at all without their husbands or brothers or legal guardians. For such are more of a hindrance than aid, or of a burden than advantage. 
Let the rich aid the needy, and according to their wealth, let them take with them experienced soldiers. The priests and clerks of any order are not to go without the consent of their bishop. For this journey would profit them nothing if they went without permission of these. Also, it is not fitting that laymen should enter upon pilgrimage without the blessing of their priests. And one did need the permission and blessing of one's parish priest to go on crusade. And there were many other uh, permissions that one needed as well at this time. There's one last thing which is worth going through, and that is the Fourth Crusade. I'd like to say a little bit about the Fourth Crusade, about which a lot of nonsense also is talked, because it's a cause of resentment even now uh, on the part of the Greek Orthodox. We may summarize the principal events of the Fourth Crusade as follows. In 1198, the newly elected 37-year-old Pope Innocent III, determined to succeed where his predecessors had failed, proclaimed another crusade for the recovery of the holy places in Palestine. He urged peaceful relations among the main sovereigns of Europe, but for a variety of reasons, none of them was prepared to take the cross. Richard the Lionheart of England had just died and was succeeded by his venal and unworthy brother, King John. The Sybaritic Philip II of France was unmoved by the crusading ideal, and Germany was in the midst of a civil war. Each claimant determined not to leave the scene and let his opponents secure the advantage. In spite of this, the Pope persevered, ordering all the clergy of Christendom to contribute one-fortieth of their income for the year 1199 to pay for the enterprise. Despite the lack of potentates, many lesser nobility agreed to go, but mindful of the difficulties of the overland route, which had drained the resources of previous expeditions, they determined to attempt the passage by sea this time. Accordingly, a delegation was sent to Venice to arrange the transport ships which would ferry the Crusader army to the Holy Land. Once in Venice, the Crusader leaders found that the negotiations for the transport were likely to leave them at a great disadvantage. The Venetians demanded an enormous sum for the transport and insisted that the first object of the Crusade be Egypt, the seat of Muslim military power, rather than Jerusalem. When negotiations were complete, Pope Innocent was asked to ratify them, which he reluctantly did, insisting meanwhile that no Christians were to be attacked along the way. In particular, the subjects of the King of Hungary. Boniface of Montferrat was chosen as leader of the crusade and was soon approached by the Byzantine prince Alexius Angelus, son of the deposed Emperor Isaac II, urging his reinstatement and promising Byzantine help for the crusade if it were provided. Must we remember that the Byzantines were constantly deposing their emperors, murdering their families, palace coups uh, were as common as the coming and going of the seasons at this time. There's always somebody with an axe to grind against somebody else in there. And so the members of the Fourth Crusade got caught up in a bit of this trouble. Boniface mentioned the subject to Pope Innocent in 1202, and was strongly forbidden even to consider it, but to proceed directly to the Holy Land. At this point, there occurred the first serious disgrace to stain the conduct of the Crusaders. Far fewer Crusaders turned up in Venice than were expected, with the result that the leaders were unable to meet the prearranged cost of hiring the ships. The Venetians insisted that the full price of 84,000 marks be delivered and proposed a solution that the crusade be diverted momentarily to capture the city of Zara on the Croatian coast, which was formerly a Venetian possession, but which had rebelled 20 years before and was now a possession of the Hungarian king. The crusaders were bitterly divided over this proposal, which was explicitly forbidden by the Pope. But the Doge of Venice was a persuasive old creature, and the great majority of crusaders swallowed their scruples and attacked their fellow Christians. A smaller body led by Simon de Montfort split from the crusade at this point and made its way overland to the Holy Land. When the Pope found out what had happened, he was appalled. He excommunicated the Venetians and he excoriated all the rest. Despite this, the victors of Zara sailed off for Corfu, a Byzantine holding, and then on to Constantinople itself having decided in open defiance of the Pope to accept the offer of Alexius Angelus 
to give them 200,000 marks, military assistance in the crusade, and a garrison for the Holy Land in exchange for their assistance in restoring the throne to his father and himself. It must be remembered that the military strength of the Byzantine army was inconsequential at the time. The defences of the city were in poor condition, the fleet was minuscule and underprepared, and the land defenders were cowardly and divided. It was not difficult for the nominally crusader army to take the city quite swiftly, with minimal bloodshed and social disruption, in July 1203, having publicly vowed to sail for the Holy Land in September. The old emperor was restored to the throne with his son as co-emperor, and the Latin army was withdrawn to a site outside the city. Unfortunately for Alexius, only half the promised amount could be paid to the Crusaders, and it was apparent that he would be entirely unable to provide any military support at all for the Crusade. Indeed, it was soon clear that only the presence of the Latin army was keeping him and his father on the throne at all, and his authority extended no further than city walls. He pleaded with the Crusaders to delay their departure for the Holy Land, which they did, but in January 1204, the situation was altered by his sudden assassination and replacement by the virulently anti-Latin Alexius V. At this point, the Latin army decided to make a bad situation worse by resolving to retake the city and help themselves to what Alexius IV had been unable to deliver. A plan was devised to divide the Byzantine Empire and its riches, half going to the Venetians, and the attack commenced. On the 12th of April, 1204, the great city fell, and for the first time in its 900-year history, it was sacked. The sack was certainly particularly dreadful, and reduced the Pope to horror and despair when he heard of it. But he was forced to accept the fate accompli, and was assured that Eastern and Western Christendom had been united, and that there were no claimants to the throne to whom it could be restored. A Latin emperor was elected, a Latin patriarch installed, and the empire was divided. But it was the hollowest of victories, with the captured moody empire being little more than a sullen hostage and a drain on the resources of the Latin West for the next 70 years. We can ask ourselves a few questions about this. Firstly, well, wasn't the sack of Constantinople a dreadful thing? The answer is yes, yes. Naturally, the sack of the city was a very dreadful thing indeed, and cannot be justified in any way. Indeed, the Pope said as much in his letter to Boniface of Montferrat, the leader of the Crusade. This is what the Pope says. You rashly violated the purity of your vows, and turning your arms not against the Saracens, but against Christians, you applied yourselves not to the recovery of Jerusalem, but to seize Constantinople, preferring earthly to heavenly riches. These soldiers of Christ, who should have turned their swords against the infidel, have steeped them instead in Christian blood, sparing neither religion, nor age, nor sex. They stripped the altars of silver, violated the sanctuaries, robbed icons and crosses and relics. The Latins have given example only of perversity and works of darkness. No wonder the Greeks call them dogs. Clearly it was disgraceful and shameful and quite unjustifiable. But equally, it would be unreasonable to view it in isolation from its time and context. It should be remembered that the Emperor Alexius III, whom the Crusaders chased out of the city the previous July, had pillaged the place and carted off almost anything of value he could lay his hands on when it became clear that he could not repel the assault. Then Alexius IV had again pillaged the city, even melting down sacred vessels and images to pay the Crusaders the bribe he had promised them. The Greeks certainly did not need to look west to see unbridled rapacity and sacrilegious misuse of holy things. Even the massacre which accompanied the sack of the city was hardly setting a precedent. For the past couple of centuries there had been periodic massacres of Latin Christians in the city, which the Byzantine emperors had done nothing to restrain. As recently as 1181, around 3,000 had died in this way and the Easterners had well and truly acquired an evil reputation for barbarous cruelty before the crusade was even thought of. Indeed, there is every reason to believe the counts that there was much score-settling among the inhabitants as well as on the part of aggrieved Latins 
during the three days of the sack of Byzantium. The sack was shocking and scandalous, but it was not unprecedented and it did not take place in a vacuum. Well, wasn't it disgraceful that Christians should attack fellow Christians? Without question, this was disgraceful, as indeed it always must be. Of course, at the time, half the Latin Christians of Western Europe were already fighting the other half, and the Eastern Christians, similarly, were never quite so threatened by the Muslims that there wasn't time for war against their immediate Christian neighbours, or a palace or popular massacre. We must remember that throughout the whole history of the Crusades, the Greeks had proved themselves not only of no assistance whatsoever to the military undertaking, but had frequently set themselves to obstruct it, denying food and supplies to the Crusaders and attacking bands of Crusaders. During the recent Third Crusade, the Emperor Isaac Angelus had even gone so far as to sign a treaty with Saladin and make war on the Crusaders. It is not hard to understand why the Crusaders despised and distrusted the Greeks, and especially since the last Crusade, they were seen by many in the West as an enemy every bit as great as the Muslims. Innocent III, knowing well the increased hostility against the Greeks, was especially keen, therefore, to keep them all as far apart as possible. Surely this is a great sin against the Greeks which we should apologize for. Well, as we've seen, the Greeks were by no means entirely innocent parties in this business, and it would be as unreasonable for anyone to claim that the members of the Fourth Crusade represented the West or the Catholic Church as it would be to argue that what Isaac Angelus gave the Sar that when Isaac Angelus gave the Saracens information on Crusader movements, he represented the Greek faith and committed a sin which they should apologize for today. Unfortunately, the actual facts of the situation have become clouded by emotion and by a firm desire on the part of anti-Catholic elements to use the failings of these men at the beginning of the 13th century to discredit the church today. Thus, the famous historian of the Crusades, Sir Stephen Runciman, wrote that, quote, there was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. With all respect to the great author, his statement is ludicrous and all the more shameful in that it was written after the Nazi horrors of World War II were well known and documented. There is an endless list of crimes against humanity far worse than the Fourth Crusade, and in all too many cases, the ridiculous hyperbole of Ratzemann and other anti-Catholic bigots has inflamed the memory of this incident far beyond its real gravity. We should remember that by the time they hit the walls of Constantinople, the members of what had been the Fourth Crusade had long ceased to be crusaders and had become nothing more than greedy mercenaries. They were not acting for the Church, but in flagrant and direct violation of her supreme authority, the Pope and many were already under the grave ban of excommunication. Long before that point, they had broken their crusader vows and disgraced themselves in the, light, in the sight of Western Christianity. If the members of that enterprise could rise from their graves, their first apology should be to God, secondly to the Pope whom they disobeyed and betrayed so heartbreakingly, and then to the Greeks whose city they took. Well, we can ask ourselves, also, wasn't the Fourth Crusade responsible for the fall of the Byzantine Empire and the eventual subjection of the Greek Church to the Muslims? I think this question gets at the heart of the resentment the Greeks still maintain against the Catholic Church. To be quite honest, the only surprise is that the rotten, corrupt structure of the Empire struggled on for another 250 years before the inevitable occurred and the city was lost to the Turks. Even at the time of the Fourth Crusade, the Empire was a political entity far less impressive than the name sounds. It nominally ruled over a small area of Asia Minor, a small area of southern Bulgaria, and the whole of Greece with its islands. For many years, most of the local rulers had been in the process of acquiring ever greater autonomy at the expense of the Emperor, whose military and financial resources were shockingly limited. The ease with which the city fell twice to the Western Europeans should be clear enough evidence of this weakness. The throne itself changed hands rapidly and almost always with great bloodshed, especially in the families of the contenders, and an atmosphere of distrust and treachery permeated the constant state of imperial affairs. It is for good reason that arcane and ruthlessly treacherous politics are still called 
Byzantine. In fact, no harm was done to the defences of the city by the Crusader assaults. Each time they were successful in a single day. Both of those assaults on Constantinople were, were begun and ended on a single day. And people imagined that the West somehow critically weakened the defences of the city. Defences were not The reason Byzantium fell both to the Crusaders and to the Turks later on was that it no longer had anywhere near the military capacity to defend itself. In view of its long-term military situation, the Fourth Crusade was of negligible effect. More significant was the loss of art and sacred relics which were looted from the city and were irreplaceable. Most of the centres of Christianity throughout the West ended up with something from the great city, but in a horrible way, we must admit that it was probably only because of this that any of it survived at all. As we know, the Turks destroyed whatever they could when they took the city in 1452, and the great church of the Holy Wisdom in Istanbul is today an empty drum. The Muslims had a particular horror of statuary and of the relics of Christian saints, which they delighted in profaning. The most we can say is that the Greeks lost them 250 years before they inevitably would have lost them anyway. And the last question we can ask in the last point of, of tonight's talk. Surely it is unchristian to launch a military assault in the name of religion. Well, there is no reason at all to assume this. It all depends upon the goal and the means taken to achieve the end. For the last half century, the United Nations has undertaken peacekeeping missions to protect the innocent and defenceless in various parts of the world when they were in direct peril. The Crusades were not undertaken to convert the Muslims, nor to exterminate them, but originally to protect pilgrims who were being slaughtered on their way to the Holy Land and to protect the holy places from the barbarism of the Muslims, who had completely demolished the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The Crusades involved hundreds of thousands of men taking holy oaths to leave their homes and families and all their familiar things, to travel for years to remote countries with no assurance of any earthly reward, risking death at every stage, and all for the sake of a beautiful ideal. Far from being a thing to be ashamed of, the Crusades represent all that is highest and noblest in the human spirit. They are an inspiration to humanity, and still lend their name to idealistic campaigns undertaken for a variety of causes. Our age of lukewarmness and religious indifference may look with distaste upon the Crusaders, but the historical relativists who condemn them must admit that the brave crusaders would certainly look with shame and incomprehension on us. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Father Anthony Robbie. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.